We are recording, and now we get to set our time timers. This is new. Time timers. 45? 45. And when it goes goes off, it's going to make this sound. Okay. And at that point, even if we're in the middle of a thought, we're done. That's it. Now you use that instead of your cell phone because it's a visual, because it's the yes, big red? that's exactly correct. The big pretty red? Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. And I'm going to put it right here. Okay. There we go. So, Do you um, start talking faster when it gets to Exactly, the, yeah. To yeah, we, 10, speed up. we speed up right five. when it gets to 10. <laughs> right. you'll, you'll, you'll hear me be like, yeah, so anyway, I was really excited to the time that we went outside and went to the park and because we played the Because I know I'm going to do that. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? You got to be crazy. Too late to be sane. You got to go full tilt, full loop. Because you're only given a little spark of that. We are attention. If you lose that, you're not attention. Pay attention. From me to you, don't ever lose that. Because it keeps you alive. This okay. episode is a special one because Aaron and I are exploring a little bit of the history behind an individual with ADHD. For me, you know, for us, that doesn't mean just the boy or girl diagnosed and growing up. It's also their family and friends and sometimes teachers, mentors, doctors. And so we have my mom is visiting LA for the week. And Aaron and I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to Mama Tanti about raising an ADHD child. Um, And also, uh, on top of that, the Tanti family, my mother included, is fairly positive that that Lynn here mm-hmm. is a an undiagnosed adult woman with ADHD. And so if, if, if the question is, where did Stephen get his ADHD from? This could be the answer. There's a pretty <laughs> high potential. So that's why that's why Mama T is on the show today. And I'm very excited to 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 talk about it all. and we're also trying something a little different today we're going to be it's going to be a light-hearted atmosphere and we have a few drinks here because we're Uh just trying to break the mood a little bit and and we're talking about some serious topics but we're going to also be kind of you know kicking back and having a few drinks maybe having a few laughs and talk about adhd growing up with adhd and I guess I want to just start out by jumping in here and asking you a question, Miss Tanti. Yes. Uh, what was it like to um, discover that Stephen had ADHD? Can you tell us a little bit about what age and what that was like in for you? In kindergarten, they had a, a system where it was a light, red, yellow, green. And if you, as a student got your name put to the yellow and then to the red, you would ha- there were uh, consequences, penalties. And Stephen, of the group, and there might have been maybe 17 kids in the class, and this is when we were in Louisiana, he got his name into the red zone often. And Stephen. Um, would you say Stephen. every day or more oh. like every other day? It was like four out of the five days. <laughs> it was a lot. And, but he also was well liked. It's important to know that uh, he was well liked and he was very bright. The teachers enjoyed having him in the class, and um, at that age, uh, it was. Sometimes they would say that it was almost acceptable with him because he brought so much to the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so although he was getting in the red zone. Uh, I was told more than one time, a few times, that they had to do that because of the other students, because he was... <laughs> to keep, oh my God, to keep <laughs> the facade of order and hierarchy. You know, like, they're like, do you think there was ever a conversation between them at one point, like, like you know, months into that year where they were like, you know, we can just keep him in the red. Like, we, right. could, just, we could just leave his name there. Right. And like, and, and you know, he's probably, it's probably going to happen. Like, right. You know what? It'll be a big deal if It'll we be... move to green. Like, right. We're going we're to mess right. with all these kids' heads and be like, but, Stephen moved to green today. Wasn't that interesting, though? In fact, I wasn't even, I don't remember, I just remembered that from having you ask the question and I forgot reflecting about that. back that I was concerned, as, as was Bob, and uh, I remember being surprised at that, that they had to 
uh, set an example. They couldn't allow him, even though he brought so much to the class. His questions were were uh, very impulsive. No, no, no. Yes, Interru- I mean, they, they were. They were. But like, you had good insight. Stephen, I mean, so it was behave. interesting. Uh, he, brought, he made it <laughs> right, interesting. Yeah. So right. what I'm doing right still, now? But the, yeah, like, what but you're the, doing right now, Stephen? Like interrupting <laughs> your mother? How rude! Come on. You know this isn't working. That's. I'm going to put you in the red zone, Stephen. You're going <laughs> into the red for this I'm episode. Little, I'm the little right, right. Okay, so kindergarten that was okay. It wasn't as big of a deal, but as he got into first grade, it became more important. And it was his first grade teacher, Mrs. Finkelton. We were in the process of looking for how for um, a house in uh, moving to Dallas, Texas, so that his first grade year, we knew we were going to be moving. And she hounded me, saying, he needs to be tested. I know you're going to Dallas. I've taught for 24 years. There are only three kids that reach his level of, it wasn't so much hyperactivity, but it was the impulsivity. Mm. It wasn't that he was falling out of his chair, bouncing all around all the time. It was just that... uh, the impulsivity, I think, is what really got her. And she said that he's very bright. Clearly, he's very bright. But if he doesn't get someone to help him, whether that's medication or seeing somebody or getting into some kind of a structure, by third grade or fourth grade, emotionally, he's not going to handle it because he's going to fail. He's going to start mm. to fail. He can't overcompensate by the time the material starts getting really difficult. So she, to her credit, even called me when I was in Dallas when he was in second grade to follow up to make sure that we took this seriously and that she reiterated of her many years of teaching, there were only three people that three kids that she was concerned about because he had so much potential. Hmm. Gen- so. Genuinely, this was sorry to, yeah. th- that, cause that's a perfect right. origin, but genuinely this teacher, I forgot about Miss Finkelton and I should give her way more credit for this woman in a town of essentially like, 800 to like 1500 people, extremely small town for this first grade teacher. Who's only seen two students before me showing signs, you know, in a tiny kindergarten class or a first grade class of 17 students. And Mm -hmm. that was probably like the only first grade class. She recognized potential for ADD and was not in y'all's face about it as much as she was like, Hey, I, you know, I pretty, I'm pretty damn sure this is the case. And it's going to become a challenge for 1990, what was it, 1998? 1998. Yeah. But also, she really liked him as Mm. a child. She was, Mm. uh, he's very charismatic, as you can tell, and he was at that age as well. So she she was concerned about him, for him, and, and it's because she also really liked him as a child. And we were on it. We already had... Uh, in November of his second grade year, we had the battery of tests that were going to be given to him. That was as soon as we could get him into uh, a testing slot. Mm. And he, Did you have to wait a while until you could get him in there? Yes, because it was difficult to get the time slot because it's a, I think it was a two-day test, and they had to evaluate him as well. And uh, the school that he got into, he tested very high, uh, out-tested 99. almost every other applicant. Yeah. And they said, we we see signs of this, and his teacher from first grade, you know, circled it and <laughs> put it in big highlight uh, highlighted area. He needs to be tested. And so they said, he isn't being tested until November. We're going to accept him, but you need to give us the assurance that you're going to do something to help him in this whole process. And we oh. did. We were we were very oh, yes. supportive of listening to what the teachers were saying and what a professional psychiatrist was going to tell us after the battery of tests. I didn't realize that ESD was on that on top of it. Being that, like, yeah, they were. Like, hey, he's coming in November. Make sure he's doing something. We need proof that you guys are working towards well, this. Well, there were only two positions that were available that were open for the second grade class. He was given one of them. And uh, it was... He and this is... ESD is, is what again? That's the... The Episcopal School of Dallas in okay. Dallas, Texas, which is a, in my TED Talk, is the school that I laud for being mm-hmm. younger, more progressive, um, Episcopalian instead of Catholic, so it's not as like this a is religiously a, This strict. is a private school. Yep, private yes. high school. Private, and you had to apply, and you had to, apply to get in. Yeah, right. and, and you had to test. You had to, you had to pass a test, and myself and, I can't remember if it was a woman or Michael Hodge. I, I can't remember. Michael Hodge. Michael Hodge, yeah. Right. So me and this guy, right. kid named Michael, right. got in right. because we were in the correct 
percentile. You know, we were. I think you and I both tested in the 99th percentile of people who took the the, the entrance exam. Or, entrance exam, yeah. right? So, um, yeah. but at the same time, there's another school, Good, uh, Shepherd. Good Shepherd, hate them. <laughs> that said, we don't like. We don't. We don't want students mm-hmm. like your son. Because he asked too many questions, and it really? wasn't the they said that to you guys. They did. It wasn't the ADHD component completely, but it would have been. I didn't like their attitude <laughs> towards Stephen, certainly as his mother, but also I liked that he questioned things. I didn't want him to just go through life taking, um, just for granted what anything is was told to him, mm-hmm. and they didn't like that. And actually, it would have been terrible for him being there whether he was medicated or not medicated because the way they taught was so strict and so it was very religious um, school not a very good but, shepherd in the end huh no no, no they were like horrible shepherds horrible shepherds they're really bad shepherds. they were they they didn't really give a shit about their flock no i'm kidding good, good judgmental shepherds. shepherds judgmental shepherds they were the they right. are the marshmallow incident so in the in right. the talk they're the they're the and the school that you know, I went around the school and found a different clock at a different time and, and ate my marshmallow. And they saw that as like defiant disorder. Is that like they thought that as, they saw that as defying authority and like not, you know, right. not appropriate. So, wait, or, which, which school was the one that you like fell off of your chair? Good Shepherd. That was that good. That shepherd. was a train wreck from the start, essentially. Right. <laughs> the, the, it was. My, my experience at Good Shepherd was not good from ground one. Ironically, I'll say that. Uh, Good Shepherd only goes to eighth grade. So Mm. freshman year of high school, a bunch of other private high schools in our like private Dallas high school kind of system or group receive Good Shepherd students. And one of my best friends on the planet came to ESD freshman year, Alex. Alex, right. So like I would have, like there's a really good chance I would have gone from Good Shepherd to ESD my freshman year of high school. So yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point. So you there, but luckily you, you could bypass the bad shepherd. And yes. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it brings up mm-hmm. a point though. Stephen mm-hmm. is a constant. Stephen is Stephen. But it's the perception of Stephen and what he brings to or takes away from an environment that that changes. Good shepherd looked at him as a liability, as an um, inconvenience. ESD looked at him as oh my gosh, she's going to add to our class, to our school. Let's just make sure we give him the support. But this is a child that we want. We really want him. We want the way he thinks. We want him. And Good Shepherd absolutely didn't. And I think as parents, Bob and I looked at Stephen not as um, a problem child, but as a very creative, gifted child that as parents, it was important for us to support him in any way we could. Mm. So, so I think there are parents that just like good shepherd would have more difficulty having a child that has, uh, severely, he was severely ADHD, <laughs> which I didn't know they could like have that on a <laughs> test. According, according to <laughs> in, every in, tester. In yeah. Like severely ADHD. Yeah. Like, isn't it not enough just to be ADHD? She, or ever, ADHD? Isn't the story go, you asked that PD off that the awesome chart. Yes. I had like, on a, what? on a scale, yes. like how bad yes. he was like, it's, it's yes. day and night yes. or it's black or white. There was, there was a third grade teacher that went uh, to China and she said that it's amazing that none of the kids there have ADHD. And oh, it was during a parent teacher <laughs> conference that Bob and I were there. And we said, do, do you think that if Stephen was in a school system in China or we raised him in China that he wouldn't have ADHD and without hesitation she said on the moon Stephen would have ADHD (laughs) (laughs) he's he's got ADHD (laughs) oh my god on the moon (laughs) well look hey I have to I have to like commend mama tanti hashtag philosopher mom for within within the first 15 minutes of recording dropping some some like truth bomb like I'm impressed that you just dropped that little philosophical nugget Stephen is a constant and it's the context in which his experience was, you know, the, the context affected his experience. So it wasn't yeah. like, like, in other words, Stephen will be Stephen on the moon. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's the context, right? So, and, so. I, well, I, have, I have a question, though. So you heard, you, you recognize right away. It's like Stephen, ADHD, 110%. He has this. Yeah, um, thanks, bro. <laughs> right. But, but Stephen has said that, that, 
he believes that you might also have ADHD or that there's qualities that you see in yourself. Did you recognize any of that as Stephen was being diagnosed or did, uh, like talk about that a little bit? Not as much as um, because I was never tested. I gravitated to sales and marketing. I was, a, uh, I am still a people person. I scored high on uh, the entrance test for law school, but I knew better than to even go there because it would have been terrible, and I might not have even gotten through it. But you got an amazing. Thing. I you had got like a one seventy two. I don't remember what I got, but I scored higher than Bob, so that was important. <laughs> <laughs> That's dad. That, for that would our, be dad. Bit, yeah. Uh, Bob is dead. Who yes. was who okay. was yeah. in, who who went through law school and is very very smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess so. I accepted my limitations, how I saw them as limitations, um, and just navigated a different path when I was growing up. So when we were having the um, the information given to us about Stephen, I didn't. We didn't, we didn't have medications to even talk about when I was in school mm. that I remember. It wasn't ever a discussion. Uh, I know that I tested you well. You mean lower? You mean like... When, when I was like, younger, yeah. when I was in second grade and third grade and fourth grade. Uh, so when the issues were being presented to us when he was a child, I didn't think, oh, well, when I was a child, I had to get on something because we didn't even have those discussions. So I wasn't comparing myself to his age. Interesting. When I was in you know, uh, high school... We had a packet system at our school where you taught yourself. I was in the honors class that I had already taken every ninth grade class I had at the public school, went to a Catholic school for high school, and the system they had, they weren't ready for the three, five of us that had already taken all those classes. And instead of putting us into the sophomore year program, they weren't suited for us, and so um, their program wasn't. And I, I had no, that's where I really noticed how, how difficult I was having um, in that system. I lost oh, my right. motivation. Yeah, yeah. I was very scattered. I, um, I did not do well where I thrived in the um, public school, middle school, because it was very competitive and I was on my game Yeah. and I learned and I stayed on the top. And I remember you can only miss four questions or you'd be booted out on the, um, in one of the, the classes. And that was a strong motivator for me because mm. I wanted to stay with those smart kids. And when I went to high school where it was kind of a free-for-all, I, I, I lost all my ground. And so that was, I'm disappointed that, that I was put into that situation. Uh, I think I would have thrived. I would have done much better at the public school, high school that all my friends went to. And unfortunately, but, that, that private, that Catholic school that you went to is now a really good school yeah. in New Orleans. Yeah, they got rid of the packet. Yeah, they got rid of the packet system. And they're they're actually they're actually a, like one of the more competitive schools in New Orleans right. now. But when she went, it was the late seventies, right? right. Mid seventies. You would and, teach yourself basically because yeah. everybody was on different schedules, on different um, not schedules, but on different uh, tracks. Blocks? Tracks. And oh, okay. If you failed a test or you didn't do well, you would retake it until you got at least a C. Mm. It, it was just I don't uh, yeah, I don't yeah. do well in that kind of a system. I'm much better with. Uh, so what what were kind of some thing. of the if obviously you you aren't diagnosed officially with ADHD, but what are some of the qualities that you would say that you share with Stephen? Well, I don't walk through a room without. Uh, my attention being drawn to 20 different things <laughs> I could be doing and thinking it's a really good idea to get started on all of them <laughs> <as> <laughs> because I can, I can handle it. I can yeah. do it. And uh, so I think, I think there are times where, uh, where if I'm cooking a meal, I don't do as well if the TV's on because my attention gets drawn to the TV and I'll slice my finger. You know, it, it's, I get easily distracted mm. Mm. Uh, by a shiny object or by a story, a good story or something. So I just, I limit those um, distractions if I'm doing something that's important or that I need to focus. I can give you two ways that were similar. One I only realized now when you were talking about competition and one that we laugh about all the time. And I'll start with the one that I realize now. Your mention about competitive and a competitive environment and how that helped you Mm-hmm. stay on track and excel actually mm-hmm. in public school. I had 
a serious challenge at a, a Texas private high school where sports were a big deal. Mm-hmm. And like, you, you know, there was no, like, you just have to play one sport a year and you've got your credit. It's like, you got to play a sport every, every semester, yeah. right? Or every, every trimester. And I found that if I was put in junior varsity, mm-hmm. even if I was, even if my skill level was, on the fence, for instance, in soccer, I was a swing player, which meant that I was like a captain of the junior varsity team, but I would sit in for senior, for varsity games just in case. And that was like my role the, in all four years. But I found in any sport, if I was put relegated to mm-hmm. the JV team, right. my skills stagnated. Right. They, wouldn't, they would not increase. But if I, had, if I had got to practice mm-hmm. for one week, uh-huh. With the varsity you team, rose to that level. I rose to that level yeah. because of the competition, and I, that's been pervasive throughout my life. Is that an ADHD life. thing? Do you think? I think or it's a that... tangible. Think about all the Olympic athletes that it are ADHD. It focuses my attention to yeah, something it, when it, there's competition. Yes. I made the joke, huh? Yes, you yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think you guys are are both onto something that, and I've seen this in my clients as well. Is that sometimes because someone is diagnosed with something. There's a tendency to to lower the bar because you're like, oh, okay, well, they're diagnosed, so therefore it's not their fault or, you know, something. And and they kind of some parents will lower the bar, or or teachers or other people that are involved in that child's life will lower the bar, thinking that we're gonna meet them at where they're at. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you put a child in a situation where you have higher expectations and you raise the bar. With and support. you challenge with support, with support, right. exactly. Support is important. Right. You can accommodations, support, encouragement, praise, all those kind of things, very important. But if you put the bar up here and you say, look, we believe in you, mm-hmm. we know you can do this, and and we want you to excel, You and you put that, you set that bar high enough, that child ends up a lot of the times getting up, like meeting that expectation or, or trying their darndest to get there. I think it taps into some of our more, honestly, I think it's, it's one of those like quick salve. It's a salve. It's a cure-all. It, it taps into like your most animal chemical basis. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's competition. It's survival of the fittest and it's tangible. Like re- the reward system is extremely uh, non-complex. It's simple. I do this I get this. If I kick the ball into the goal, I get a point, right. and our team actually, wins. It's tangible. And, and actually, on the subject of Darwin, yeah, not yeah. to jump off on a tangent, but no, but <laughs> it's not really survival of the fittest. Darwin's whole framing of it was adapt to survive, and the okay, survival right. of the right, fittest right, right. was kind of like taken out of context. So mm-hmm. we think that 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 there's this whole social Darwinism right now that's propagated in schools. And this actually goes with ADHD as well, that, uh, that students should are either born a certain way and, you know, the strong will survive and the rest will just kind of fail or whatever it is that, that mentality. But actually the whole thing about Darwin is that those who are good at adapting to things are actually the ones that will survive and thrive in whatever Mm. environment they're in. Well, well, we both have that in common. We do, except I really didn't do well when I was in that packet system. And so I think, I don't, I just. Well, I think the I, argument there is that it, there wasn't, there wasn't a way to adapt. There like was no you way from my. There, you weren't, there, adap- adapting wasn't an option. Like there, there wasn't an, an a, a version that you could tweak or adapt to as a freshman. I, so a I was drifting. I was just drifting. Well, wait, this hold on. Greater than I, part. I wonder, so. I wonder, let's say there was an ADHD diagnosis back then and you okay. were given accommodations like extra time or, or given extra supports, pulled out right. for extra supports. Do you think that would have made, could have made any difference in that? Yeah. I think that just thinking about uh, my ex-husband, his father, on his own, he, and I don't want to say it, he's got the discipline to do it, but he doesn't, uh, he can read. Dad mm. can just read and read and read things that aren't interesting. And Truly. No, truly. It's shocking. He can he, read, he he really can read can. shit that's not interesting. So he could have done the hours. packet system and been fine. I, even mm. if I'd been given extra time, I was given more opportunities to t- keep taking a test if I didn't do well. 
I don't know that that would have been enough. I think the whole system was not good for me being probably undiagnosed having ADHD. I, I was not going to succeed in that as well as I did, and I absolutely did, in those other years before that. And when I was in marketing and sales, after I graduated, I did very well because I could, like you said, I, I could see the, the reward at the end. I could mm. go for it, and it, and it was... Uh, it was very easy for me to focus and to to get to those points. But, can I yeah, can I, I pause you guys like, for a second? Yes. Just yes. Yeah. So yeah. I Go keep ahead. hearing a tap on the oh, microphone. That was, that's that's this one. <laughs> okay, that would be the ADHD that's this, mother. That's the, that's the uh, <laughs> tapping the table. So yeah. For those listening, so let's not. This, <laughs> okay. All right. It's because it's because Mama T is making a big point. Gotcha. She's like, listen. I take this very seriously. So that beat that Steven's okay, going to have to edit out okay. in post That's every time is the moment right before she makes a really good point. It's like, <laughs> and okay, I point. apologize. That's and, me. And, That's and me I'm going to have to go point. before everything she has to be like, and oh, <laughs> Okay. Well, at least for the next 18 minutes, I won't do that. Yeah. No, it's great. It's oh, great. man. But, but this um, is, so you're cutting this part out, right? Yeah. Oh, the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, we're going to start over. Um, <laughs> no, um, but yeah. you know what? Those are things I never thought about until you just asked me the question. And yeah, I didn't. I, think I didn't. That there are. I, I think. I think that. I think to put it bluntly, the yeah. school that had this like packet system and didn't have a, 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 the foundation ready for these five students who came from a more aggressive public school system. They, I, I don't think they'd have extended time like that. That sounds like that school wasn't ready for all sorts of things. So. To mom's point, it, it may not, it just may not have been that wouldn't have been enough. It just was the wrong place, wrong time. And you having the opportunity to go to ESD was such a better experience for him as opposed to going to Good Shepherd. So I think the environment uh, just played an important role in the success oh, yeah. or failure of the child, whether oh. they're medicated or not, or given extended time or not. Absolutely, Aaron That's can speak fine. to that. Adam, yeah. my roommate of four years, can speak to that. Right. I mean, the my buddy in Chicago who's in and out of being homeless and an Uber driver can speak to that because he's, you know, raised in the inner city of Chicago, south side Chicago, and yeah. know, no help for ADHD. The, the environment, the support someone's given definitely is a factor. But also, I think in some ways, Stephen has has a lot of confidence, and I've, and I've seen that. <laughs> I, I wonder, I, yeah, I, I kind of wonder what, where do you think that comes from, that that sense of self-assuredness and confidence that Stephen projects. Do you think it's all nurture or do you think truly, do you think genuinely? Cause I, I, my impulse is to say I was raised by very confident women, you, Janet, Marcy, like all of my, my Nana, all of my female mentors were very strong women. I think it's a combination of things. I think that just as I said, had he been at good shepherd where they didn't, they looked at him not as having gifts, but as a being problem. disruptive and being a problem. It's hard to have confidence if you're in that environment. And there are parents that want strict, rigid rules to be followed. And I think it's very difficult for a child to uh, gain confidence in that environment. It happened that I thought he was brilliant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Aaron, there was a point of time when he didn't even talk yet, and he was an early talker, that he liked yogurt juice, and it was expensive. And so I would uh, try to dilute it. Wait, with yogurt? Apple juice. What, wait, what is yogurt? I was about to say. I was about to say. She's about to. She's about to say. I try to dilute it with apple juice. There's a reason for that. Okay. It's essentially sugar milk. Okay. It's it, yeah, but it was it was yogurt. And what did the dentist <laughs> it was say? Yogurt juice. Okay. This is my deal. You don't talk. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's yogurt juice. It's little jars, and it was 50 cents a jar or a dollar a jar. And so he really liked them. And uh, I would uh, dilute them and then put them in the refrigerator because once you open it, you have to put it in the refrigerator. Well, he picked up on that, and he wouldn't drink anything out of the refrigerator because it was cold. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to do it right before I give it to him. I'm going to open up the jar. I'm going to dilute it with the water, the apple juice, whatever, and put it in the pantry and take him with me, holding him, because he was still very little, in the pantry. And this is what he did to me. <laughs> he held it up to the light, and he handed it back to me. And I thought, oh. okay, okay, he is way smarter than me. <laughs> and, and, oh, damn. I mean, that was... That How was, old was I? Oh, uh, Oh, 10 months, eight oh months. Oh, my God. I, mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize it was that young. You weren't talking. Speechless. Yeah, you yeah, weren't yeah, talking yeah. or anything yet. So I was carrying you. And yeah. So, so I, I, I respected his mind, <laughs> yeah. and he was 
funny, and he was, God, a generous heart, a wonderful person. So oh. it was easy for me to love him. It, it was, and to believe in him. And Marcy, my very dear friend who helped, you know, takes a village to raise kids. It was a village with us. We had five kids between us, and, and we were um, always together. So this is the woman who's mom number two in my phone. To give you an idea. So she's very, very much like second mom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she, we, we really liked, besides loving our kids, we liked our kids. Mm. And I think there's um, a sense of confidence that comes from that because you can, nav- you can, you can try different things and feel safe. So what, I think that was important. So what you, you guys could, did so well, sorry, apologies huh? to interject, but what you did so well was ride the line between friend and parent. I yeah. think, you know, it's really easy to fall into one side and live there just in one side to be just a parent, not mm-hmm. a confidant, or to be too much of a friend right. and a peer and oh, not enough right. of a parent. And right. I think you and Marcy and dad, I mean, dad too. Well, there are rules. Out of I mean, there were exactly. rules in but the house. But you were able was, to switch right. from parent to confidant, to peer, like an emotional peer, right, and then back to parent, right, in a way that I don't think all parents are always capable of. Like, I don't think that comes naturally to. to do you all do you think that 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 was part of your your confidence that you were able to to gain? Do you think it was a factor? I'm asking you, Stephen. Now, like, was that more of the environments and the opportunities that you were given as a child, or the support? and guidance that you got from your parents and other folks that you were surrounded with? To, to keep it as concise as possible, there were there was a series of phases, but really like two, two bit major ones involving my mother and my father. My mother is responsible for phase one, which was like birth to getting to college, right? It, that 18 to 19 years this relationship was crucial in building confidence. I had somebody that I could talk to and who respected what I was going through. I'm sure you were aware, like all of us, that in high school, teenagers, everything is high stakes, right? Stuff that may sound ridiculous to an adult means the world to a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old. And where my father, bless his heart, would laugh uncomfortably. He was was uncomfortable by teenage problems, right? Mm -hmm. He couldn't, he couldn't, communicate the same way that my mother could. My mother, Marcy, and, it's, and this is such a mom thing, right? They could, they could come, it's almost like come down to your height, your teenage level and, you know, take very seriously, oh, that is a big deal. I can't believe that he said that, or you know what I mean? Right. And, and what can we do to get you out of that situation or to right. walk through that navigation? Uh, right. Through that yeah, situation. yeah, navigate, to help, na- right. like, like and, I'm going to help you navigate this emotional But we didn't experience. laugh at him, though. And we, was your we, dad's response more of like, well, suck it up, like, that's life. Right. It's a very classic dad vibe, right? right. The, I, that was crucial for the first 18 years in building confidence because here's somebody, an adult, a person of authority who does have rules and you are supposed to follow them. They are your parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, you know, this one gets kind of like psychologically effed up <laughs> if, you, if you break rules to like prank you and shit, like pop your toys. So, so we, we, had, we had boundaries, but within those boundaries, we were also respected emotionally and psychologically. We were given respect as little, little people, little adults, you right. know? We, would, we listened to you. I mean, that, that's, I think, was very important. Yeah, and we then listened. phase two was me drawing from my father. Like I can say with confidence that by the time I hit college, I started operating more through, uh, uh, I started picking up some Bob philosophies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is incredibly diligent. He is a bridger. Like he's, you know, I don't know if you've read Blink or, but he, he's a bridge. He, he knows how to adapt to multiple mm-hmm. types of environments yes. and contexts. He is, he is univer He's interested. His curiosity is very high as curious and everything. I started channeling a lot of dad vibes by the time I hit college, even though the communication wasn't quite there yet. That would that would come after college. In fact, very recently, I still started to use some of his character traits that live within me, and I and I started I started pinning them. Like I started highlighting, oh, that's something he does. That my voice sounds like him suddenly. Mm-hmm. So I noticed there was a phase shift where I started started using those elements, and I got confidence from that when it worked. You know, like there were some things that I would do that he would do that worked. There were also some things that he or she would do that I would do that were crutches that were not so good. Like in my relationship in college or in college, you know, you start to recognize those characteristics that aren't good to repeat, but by and large, 
a, a vote of confidence from both of you guys. Right. Well, every big phases. Everyone has a little bit of of either parent, and yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. comes out. You know, no no matter what, like whether it's in your your relationships or in your work right. or school or the persona you put off publicly versus how you act at home, that kind of stuff. But it sounds like you kind of got a, a bit of a balance here. You had this emotional foundation from your mom, this emotional support, this understanding that you gained from your mom and were able to communicate to her on a certain level. And then you also saw this example of a very confident kind of uh, type type A personality alpha of, male. of alpha male of your father that also helped you kind of raise the bar for yourself and give you something high to shoot for. I recognized by senior year of college, I told my then girlfriend, I would talk about it a lot actually, junior and senior year, this notion that I was, amongst my siblings and my parents, I somehow was like a 50-50 hybrid. I could point to my brother and my sister and I could see like a 70-30 or mm-hmm. a 70-30. And I think mom can attest to this. There's mm-hmm. there's like, my siblings are kind of weighted towards one side a little bit uh, all, across character traits. Like you could see the way, but I felt very 50-50, like a clean break mm-hmm. between both male and female, between both dad and mom. And uh, there were there are examples that we could go on for hours about over my four years at college where I was like, oh, that is like... That is maternal plus alpha male to a T. Like, mm-hmm. and and I like my career as a director, as someone who works with humans on a deeply personal emotional level, comes from this one, absolutely. But my role as a as a a captain of the mm-hmm. ship, as a delegator, mm-hmm. as a that com- I, I feel like that comes from from. More of dad's Okay, role. I've got something I want to ask you. Yeah, hit me. You, you said when you were at Carnegie Mellon that uh, some of your other directors, your peers, didn't think that you had the, when you were younger, first yeah. there, uh, that they might have thought they were better than you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was definitely but, the black sheep. Okay, so what it, but at then, first. Th- but that turned, though, that changed. You had done um, a music video, I think, and they saw you actually yeah. do that really well. Yeah. What are some things that you did that, um, I mean, as a mom, I saw you reading a lot more and yeah. uh, getting more facts because you do like to give information and to to debate things and yeah. to engage in conversation. And I found that as you got a little bit older in college, you put... You put a lot of time into beefing up your knowledge, I guess. And did you notice, you told me that you noticed a change and that, that your peers noticed a change. Absolutely. Okay, so what did you? Th- what do you think you did that changed that? Because Again, to, that's a confidence thing. Yeah. And, uh, so what happened? What did you do? Yeah, how did, how did you, yeah. yeah, how did you I, overcome, like, I guess, I think what your mom's trying to say is, like, how did you overcome that that lack of, like when you went to college, you were you were reminded that you weren't the the top person there. You weren't at the at the top, uh, the cream of the crop at, at the top. You weren't performing at that level, but but you still you had this ability that was in there that and, you had. And, and I want to mm-hmm. I've got to interrupt you because also he did excel in the acting classes. You excelled yeah. in he excelled in many things, but the the group of directors are just by nature, I think. More oh, judgmental, far more ob- right? Objective, <laughs> subjective, 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 and, and yeah. judgmental. Yeah. So right. it wasn't that he was like really failing at something. It was just that they were kind of snobby about it. Yeah. So what did you I'll do? St- I'll start by do? saying, years later, currently, these yeah. are some of my best and most important friends on the planet. So Absolutely. we were by the senior year, the seven of us were about as close as you could possibly get as a group of students. And they're in the all very talented. Major. And oh, they're and extremely talented. All seven of us are completely individually talented yes. and very distinct yeah. tastes. So what did you do? What so did you do? so the first so the first thing that happened the moment I got on campus Quickly is I in one minute. I know. Yeah, you've got in like two minutes. Okay. So I hung out with the actors and other students at Carnegie a lot more than the directors, which got me the moniker Shithead, which is shithead. Because I didn't hang out with the directors. So it was already a bad start. But what I did was, remember that whole thing I said about varsity, junior varsity? Uh-huh. All right. Going to Carnegie Mellon, which I talk about so much that it's obnoxious and it drives my girlfriend crazy, 
was one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life or one of the most important things that happened. And there are many schools like it, but that school is so challenging and it has so many hyper-intelligent people in it that I was always on. Like that competitive switch that we were discussing a moment ago was always on. There was, there, I, I wasn't, I never, I didn't sleep. I didn't rest because I could walk down the sidewalk between my dorm and the, the fine arts building and pass by an autistic guy who ended up becoming a friend of mine who was an aerospace engineer designing rocket you know, fuel. Like he was in an engineering program designing new rocket fuel. So that were, those were the stakes. I was at one of the toughest schools in the United States, in the world. Mm -hmm. And because of that, every single person that I met was one of the best at that age in the country at whatever they were doing. And that drove me to work harder than I have ever worked in my life in any institution, at any job. Because everyone around you, there, there wasn't a sports team. There wasn't, a, you, didn't, you didn't get accepted to Carnegie Mellon because you were a track star. You were a math star, mm -hmm. right? So, so, so did you rise to the occasion and you worked extra hard? Yeah, because I was, I was making something that was unique to me against my directing classmates was that freshman year, first semester, I started making friends in various clubs and other colleges outside of the School of Drama. And I was recognized for this. I, I was one of four people who got a student leader award because we uh, uh, created events, organizations, uh, activities, projects outside of our own college. It's mm. essentially Carnegie Mellon saying, hey, you're a great collaborator. So you were like a bridge builder. You you built bridges across to other different groups. Yes. That and I, and I made a point of that to my classmates. I even called the directors, the whole directors, all years, my junior year, senior year, I called us all out during colloquium. It was a big, it's very big controversy because I said to uh, during playground, which is this week long of student run theater, I said to the group on a Friday when we all met, all directing majors across years, and I said, um, if you don't collaborate with somebody outside of the school of drama for your playground piece, I, I think it is a uni I think it's universally a mistake. Like I think that if you do a piece, and so all these drama kids were like, "Beg your pardon," and like were really livid that I called them all out. And I was like, "You don't branch out enough." That quality, that exploratory quality, and that that I think something I might have been born with that you nurtured very well is that everyone is interesting. Everyone has a good story. Right. There's no no one is higher or lower. I didn't have this entitlement that some of my classmates most certainly did. Hmm. That they were thinkers, they were philosophers, hmm. they were directors, they were the captains. I didn't have that. I didn't feel that way. I felt like everyone could contribute something. And because of that, I was commended by multiple professors in collaboration. I love collaborating. I love a group of people. And it should come as no surprise that my thesis play, I was the only male on my team. It was all women from designers to assistant directors to stage managers, you name it, hmm. entirely a, a women crew. And it's because boys suck. Like I, and, like I, and I it, noticed. And it's interesting because uh, it's, it's like that early foundation you established with your mom, yeah, your mom's friend. Women. My mom, Marcy, my mm -hmm. aunt. It was, strong I was, women. I was You're raised by strong women. women. So steel from, Magnolias. Yes, yeah, Steel Magnolias. You've said that before. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what would you like other parents to know? Some of the lessons learned about raising Stephen, what would you want to tell other parents who may have a child who's either just been diagnosed or is in a similar position? It's a great question. It is. I was, I was fortunate that I wasn't working, so I wasn't exhausted at night having to... Uh, give a lot of energy to someone who demanded energy from me. And I think that's a real benefit. And I did work uh, up until uh, the time that he was about four years old. I was say four or five. Right. So I think that was, uh, it's very important. I wasn't exhausted. And I think that's, that's a big benefit as a parent to have that. And so maybe it's going to take energy. Like if you're saying parents, it's going to take And so if you're a working focus. parent, you need to, as a team, uh, mm. you need to have somebody to help you because you're going to be tired. And if you're a single parent or if you've got a parent, uh, a, a spouse that isn't as engaged as you are, you need, then I would look for support 
and friends like I did with Marcy, my good friend, my mom, my sisters. So I would not try to do it alone. And I, I think you'll be, your child will out energy you well before you can, you know, survive that. So yeah. I would say get help, uh, support. And what, did, and what did you do with your, the discipline style or the structures in your house that you feel helped instill both of this, this confidence and uh, self-assuredness that Stephen projects? I think it was very important that we had structure in the house. We had mm. dinner on the table at 6 o'clock oh, every night. Yeah. Right? We had a Huge routine. Deal. We weren't going through fast food every night. We weren't... Uh, there was structure. So yeah, no, we all got that, dressed in the morning in the same yes. place. Yeah, ex- explain, that, explain that a little bit. What, what was okay. that structure yeah. like? Well, uh, they would uh, put their clothes out the night before. We had everything ready because I knew that... The and that was an expectation? Person. They should, they needed to put their clothes oh, out? Oh, it was more than an expectation. I mean, it, it was just... Which, which I broke more than enough well, times. Well, the problem... Yeah, he would steal his brother's <laughs> belt and socks and tie because his brother was kind <laughs> of OCD about it. And Brian, but, my poor brother, was the OCD. <laughs> he, I, he and I went to the same high school. Jennifer went to a boarding school. So I used to drive him to school every morning. And he was always pristine and on time. And everything was like laid out. And I would steal his ties. And so you could see my brother in the morning looking at his, at his pile... Right. And being like, this isn't right. And I had like stolen his belt. <laughs> he would be driving to school and he'd be like, that's my fucking belt. He's right. so mad. But, but when, they were, when they were younger and, and uh, well, also just uh, having the structure. And then also they did their own laundry when they were mm-hmm. in high school. Uh, there was a, we had a stackable wash and dryer near their bedrooms. And, and it just, so through the structure, there mm-hmm. was organizational uh uh, no, you got setup. it. Systems. Yeah, there was, there was a system. Yeah, organizational systems. But within that, and that allowed us to have the time to go up. I didn't watch much TV at all. I really didn't. I no, would go upstairs didn't. and I would go listen to the piano piece he was doing, or because I liked it, and mm. uh, I would. And and so what Bob and I were both we were just interested and fascinated by what they said and did. Both and of you were so that was good. Very so, good at supporting the kids verbally, but being interested in them. Yeah, so I would say um, he was able to flourish because we had the structure. That is so important because it would all fall apart if you didn't have structure. No. And I knew I needed it. Yeah. So I forgot I about the family dinner night. thing was vital. I think yeah, eating together every night. It was night. A, a home base was an anchor every yeah. day. Like that, yes. it always happened at the same time and every day. Also, I, I know this bothered me. I think more than Dad. If they fought, uh, if the kids were mean to each other, that that's when I would lose it because <laughs> I wanted it to be a safe haven because there already were enough uh, struggles and and um, issues outside of the family that they were dealing with. Because also his sister has dyslexia; she's ADHD, but more of a mild case. Uh, Brian had struggles, and so it was very important to me, and I don't know where this comes from, but it was very important uh, that my kids and the family, were they were, uh, it was a safe place. I know home. where it comes from. You were the middle child. So. Yeah, probably You were so. the middle child. You had, right. two, you, had two older, you had two older siblings who were always at each other's throat, right. and then you had a younger baby sister. Right. You were the middle child. So you were like, hey. Right. Stop I was, being asked. Like there was, yeah, there was no like so, firstborn. You know. So you you showed interest, or, or you showed interest in what your kids were doing, but also it seems like you guys really helped helped like further their interests too, like guided their interests in certain directions or helped supported their interests. Because mm-hmm. Stephen describes even in his TED talk and other things he's described in his childhood how he. He did all sorts of things, like you know, drum drum lessons, and and was interested in this thing and that thing, and goes on and on about all the different yes, kinds of that's activities. True. That's very true. What were the conversations like between you and Dab when I was like airbrushing? Like, did you more the more the behind the behind closed doors conversations? Were they like, okay, well, well, let him try this one. Okay, well, I'm try this one. Or were you? Was it like on this side of the scale where you're like fascinated? You're like, let's see what the kid can do. Or was it like, okay, here's the next one, like the next interest. Okay, there was definitely. The next interest and the next interest and the okay. next interest. But uh, he was a fast, quick learner. Yeah. And there was one summer, for instance, in Aspen where he went to the uh, 
when you talk about the Boogies. airbrushing, he went to Boogie's mm -hmm. on his own, introduced himself to the gentleman who did airbrushing of all the little shorts and T-shirts in the back, and he worked every day because he's hyper-focused on something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, the, the person said, I'm not going to teach you anything about the fun airbrushing until you do calligraphy. You take this calligraphy book, oh, you go horrible. home, yeah. and I want, you, I want to see many, many, many pages of calligraphy. So he had to go home and do calligraphy. And I think this is what the guy thought would get rid of him. And it didn't. <laughs> I came rushing back. He I was like, oh, shit. Now he this, little, this little bastard, now he came back with the calligraphy yeah. book? Oh, man. And he yeah. filled it out. He did the whole thing. And so so to his credit, yes, we well we financially were able to maybe support some things that other families might say, hey, I just can't. We can't do that. We can't pay for you to do something. We were able to do... Uh, do that support yeah. him financially in some yeah. of his endeavors but it's, which is a huge yeah but it's easy to support somebody when he's doing calligraphy every day for you know a month just because he wants to get to the fun stuff so we we didn't have to direct him that much in things because like he said uh he's always he's never bored he's very curious he finds something that's uh very interesting to do and although he goes from one thing to the next thing to the next, he learns something enough that, for instance, that uh, airbrushing, he he got to use it when he went to Carnegie Mellon and he had to work behind the set. Holy fuck, I forgot painting. about that. Yeah. So he retains the information, too. Freshman year, you have to do crew. You have to do costume crew, tech crew. You have to do one show. You have to work all freshmen, no matter, you know, directors, actors have to work one show and some kids get lucky and get to do uh like a like a grad director's show which is only a week and then some kids get quote unlucky and have to do a main stage show which is three weeks i didn't quite see it that way i liked theater tech so you, you were to able to hold on to this and and use it later on in your life he was committed i, by I the had professor. to do a costume i had to do costume crew for three weeks and i was excited and on the day three of sewing because they just essentially gave directors and actors the sewing job we were really like we were just You're grunt right, work. Right, right right and i hate i'm so bad at sewing it's it's hysterical i'm so bad but kept pricking myself it's awful and one student a senior ran out of the spray paint room and he was exasperating. He was like, he was like just cursing under his breath. I was like, what's going on, Travis? And he was like, these freaking airbrush, you know, things. And I was like, airbrush, what do you guys use? I knew the company name. I knew the two, they only had two of these brushes and I, um, <laughs> good use. I fixed them. I was the only student who knew how to fix them. And then they immediately put me on airbrush duty and I distressed 30 pairs of overalls for the grapes of wrath. Okay, but when he was in high school and he was doing airbrushing and the little girls that were cheerleaders thought it was so cute and he wanted to uh, endear himself to them, he said, oh, I can do those shorts for you. I'll do airbrushing for you. He called me from school and said, mom, they need him tomorrow or they need him tonight and I'm I so haven't done them. The story. So that's his ADHD coming in yeah. and I had to go to the mall, Valley View mall. where they had an airbrushing kiosk and have them have the guy i paid it was 60 dollars, 30 dollars yeah, a shirt a shirt so i could bring it back to steve and i said that's the end of your business no yeah. more <laughs> i made i so, made one shirt for a guy friend that was right. beautiful and yeah. these two women friends of ours were like we want those and i that that one shirt took me weeks right and they were like we need them tomorrow and i was like i'm totally screwed <laughs> like, i can't i can't so he didn't that. say so i can't do it he said hey mom could that you was go? that was the tragic <laughs> end of airbrushing so that, that was, was the, the end last, of it that was the end, was the end of it so so you know you have to kind of go with the flow. Yeah. But I I didn't I kid I didn't keep buying, you know, twenty of them for him to, no. to fake out everybody. That was the end after the first thing. So this this is interesting because you touched on something about Stephen kind of overcommitting himself, stretching himself too thin. Never. What what uh -huh. what's your piece of advice for Stephen or other? I guess just for Stephen going forward with that with with the kind of overcommitting himself and that being a tendency. Is there anything you would, you would tell him or for any ADHD or, or for any ADHD? Or yeah. I, that would be the one thing that does as his mom and as you know, a mom of an adult Steven mm -hmm. that I worry about that he does spread himself thin, that he does uh, try to do too much. And, uh, my being here now, one of the things that I'm going to just be aware of and, and, try to get a temperature on is 
is he spread himself too thin? And he told me that he's much, um, his schedule's much better now that he's not in New York, that he's sleeping more, that he uh, is not saying yes to everybody. So I think, I think he's kind of working through some of those things. But as his mom, I do, that would be the one thing that concerns me because he, it's difficult for him to say no. Very. Very. For, for multiple reasons, I think. Yeah. But it's just difficult. And I think no, it's it unhealthy. Is. It's for multiple reasons. Multiple That's reasons. Thing. It's, not right. like, it's not like, I'm it's, addicted to work. Right. It's, it's, um, and it's not that you, it's not like, oh, I need approval. So I tell everybody, yes, it's not that it's, no. it's, um, he, he likes the learning something new. He yeah. likes the camaraderie. He likes the interaction. He like there's so many different reasons he says yes to people. But, uh, I think he's getting better at saying no. Much. And, and as I wouldn't have any advice. I don't know. I really don't know what I would say if I, if I came here and he was, you know, not sleeping. I would say something, but I don't know that I could really affect anything from so far away. I would almost say, hearing that, that I think it, I have a feeling it's less about giving me advice and more about while that is necessary for adults to tell their kids, "Hey, don't spread yourself too thin." ADHD is because it'll it, it's natural, it comes naturally. I think this is another factor of ADHD awareness and ADHD advocacy that people understand it's not as easy as saying as just calling your friend and saying no. That for ADHDers who are hyper empathetic, I'll speak for myself. Every time I call someone and cancel a meeting, say no to a project, or even ask for an extension, it takes so much emotional energy to do that because I am so against letting people down. Mm-hmm. people who don't have ADHD, my father, right. uh, some classmates of mine from Carnegie, they look at me like I'm an alien when when I someone's asked me to do something and I'm like, I don't know what to tell them. They're like, call them and say no. It's like this. they don't understand it. And they don't understand that just like, it's, it's not even like I've said yes already. Mm-hmm. Before even saying yes, I feel like I'm letting Is someone down. Is that an down. ADHD mm-hmm. component, do you think? Well, it's definitely a I, there's definitely a part of ADHD in there because it's like ADHDers are, tend to be more empathetic and emotionally uh, kind of invested, and especially like because of criticism, like we're more hypersensitive to criticism. Uh, so if you're worried about hurting someone else's feelings or or them criticizing you because of something you've done, uh, that can also it, it can really have a, a profound effect on someone. Well, then I would say that's something that it's, he's uh, very, that's very true for Stephen. Yeah. And that would be a concern. That has been a concern of mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen, what, what would you tell someone who let, who's, let's say is, is in their early 20s or, or late teens who, hold on, your, your, your alarm went off one minute earlier than mine. Okay, great, 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 great. Well, this is it, man. Like this okay, is the last su- question. This is the last. What question. is it? This is the, la- this is the last, last question. One. Last minute. Okay. I think we're doing very healthy, by mm-hmm. the way, as an interjection. This is a great timing right, exercise. Right. So, last question is: What would I tell? What would you what? tell uh, someone in their teens or early twenties who is possibly overcommitting themselves? What would you tell that person? Oh man. Honestly, that's a really tough one, uh, and I could go for a while about that because it is such a struggle for me. That's a tough one. Um, I would probably I would probably start by telling them that if twenty six year old Stephen could go back to not even that far to twenty two year old Stephen, just mm-hmm. right after graduating, and tell him, "Hey, you will have roughly the same amount of friends, the important ones. You will accomplish enough." interesting and, and, and prominent work, you will have as much of a good time if you commit to half of the things that you want to commit to. Like just every other one. Try this for one year. Try it for one month. Just every other project that someone offers to you, say no. Just say no. And, and I, I, I would advise, I think, anybody or my younger self, like, Trust me, trust me. Years later, you will look back and the difference was not between one project and the next, especially for us entertainment people. 
you can say no every other project and you will be okay, especially in your early 20s and your mid-20s. Because dead serious, all you guys listening, no one, essentially no one, is creating the next Tesla coil or the next, you know, Apple at 18, 19, or 20. They're, they're not. They're, everyone is practicing. Everyone is trying to figure it out, and it's going to take a decade to do so no matter what career they're in. So this worry I had, this FOMO, this severe fear of missing out that I had was just not, it was so manufactured. It was so self-produced. It was based on my insecurity, not on any reality, right? So I would tell, I would tell a teenager, it's FOMO. It's just a fear. You can, you can, you can conquer fear. You can, you can control this fear. Say no every other time. And that alone will be a huge help. Okay. I like that. I like that answer. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I liked your answers too. Oh my God. I liked your, I liked what you did. I like what you said. <laughs> we're gonna go have dinner together yeah, and celebrate. We're gonna, we're gonna celebrate, celebrate yeah. ourselves. <laughs> we're gonna start our own podcast. Hereditanti. <laughs> Hereditanti. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for coming and yeah. Thanks, participating in our podcast. We really appreciate it, and I yeah. hope you know a lot of people find that this useful little insight into raising a child with ADHD. So it's a wild adventure, right? It sure can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. If you get to sleep. <laughs> you see what I mean? You got to be crazy. Don't like to be saying you got to go full tilt, full room, because you're only giving a little spark of that. We are attention. If you lose that, you're not attention. Pay attention. Pay attention.